Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is February 1st, 2012, and my guest is David Owen, staff writer for The New Yorker. His latest book is The Conundrum. David, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you. This is a fascinating, short, engaging book on the small topic of saving the planet um, and the environment generally. And you've called your book The Conundrum. What, what is The Conundrum? I guess the, the book is about unintended consequences, and the, the conundrum is that even when we are uh, acting with the very best of intentions, the, the results are often at cross-purposes with our goals. The, the subtitle of the book is How Scientific Innovation, Increased Efficiency, and Good Intentions Can Make Our Energy and Climate Problems Worse, and the book is really a collection of, of examples of that, of how... Uh, easy thinking about these very difficult problems not only uh, doesn't make things better, but in but in many cases, I think, uh, arguably makes things worse. Now, you write for The New Yorker, correct? Yes. Uh, is the, when does the book come out? The book comes out very soon, in a week or two. Okay, so that'll be around, that's first or second week of February. Are you worried you're going to lose your job? <laughs> I'm always worried I'm going to lose Good. my job. Good. That's smart. But uh, this is an unpopular um, position to hold that, you, that you've staked out in the book, that, that good intentions don't always turn out well. Um, what kind of reaction do you get from people when you tell them that? Well, uh, it's and mixed. We'll go in, in a minute, we'll go into some of the, the details, obviously. But And I think it's mixed, and I think that it's, it's hard to put an ideological label on it. It's, I've been accused of being both a, uh, you know, a, a conservative and climate denier, and a, you know, a flaming liberal and socialist. So it's. Uh, you don't strike me as a climate denier. No, uh, but I when I gave a talk to a uh, to a group of efficiency experts, they were quite angry, and that was the that was the accusation. So, but I think that there's. As in any field, there's lots of comfortable thinking, and uh, sometimes comfortable thinking is accurate, but, but sometimes it's not, and the uh, conventional wisdom is often not a good guide to, to, uh, to the truth. But it's very depressing to people to be told that their good deeds don't have good consequences, so it's, that's one of the most – there are many interesting things about the book. There's some interesting factual um, stories and, and, and facts, and there are also a lot of – contrarian perspectives on things that everybody takes for granted, and that's why I think it's such a, an interesting book. Uh, well, let's start with the energy efficiency case. Uh, there, there's a big debate, which as an economist I was unaware of. I, I think it's, it's a little more straightforward from an economist's perspective, but there's a big debate in the environmental, in environmental circles about whether energy efficiency is a good thing or not. Uh, it would seem obvious that making your car more fuel efficient or your refrigerator more energy efficient or your house more energy efficient, that would seem to be a good thing. That reduces the amount of energy 
And if you're only – we're going to ignore the material prosperity aspect of this. If you're only caring about the environment, certainly it would seem obvious that that's a good thing, but it's not so simple. So explain why. Well, it's, you're exactly right. It seems it seems obvious uh, to the point that energy efficiency has been spoken of as the, the fifth fuel. It's the, as the most uh, widely distributed and equitably distributed energy source in the world. You know, simply what we waste, simply by making our machines work better, we could eliminate the need for nuclear power, for example. This is, has always been Amory Levins' argument. The, the difficulty with energy efficiency is that it's not something we just thought of. It's something we've been doing for as long as there's been civilization. Uh, the history of civilization is making, making machines do more with less fuel, to turning, to doing more with less energy. And uh, that hasn't caused uh, global energy consumption to fall. It's been the, the source of our astonishing prosperity, you know, the wonderful way we live. Uh, the question is whether, why now, now that we energy is a problem to us, do we think that this thing we've been doing all along will cause our uh, energy consumption to fall? And the, when the question first came into my mind, it was when you know, when you people there was a it's pretty much received wisdom that energy in the United States is is too inexpensive; it's too cheap. Uh, Gasoline is the, uh, you know, you go to a gas station, gasoline is probably the cheapest manufactured liquid that is for sale there. You go inside, you know, uh, milk costs more, even bottled water costs more. A fascinating fact that's often not noted. And often not noted. And it's extraordinary. When I, I've been in Europe and it's, you know, gasoline is at two and three times as expensive. And yet, at the same time, an environmentalist will point this out. And yet, at the same time, say, you know, we need cars that are more, get more miles to the gallon. Well, when you increase the, the miles per gallon in a car, you're doing the same thing as decreasing the cost of the fuel. Uh, you're just making a mile less expensive to drive. And so I wondered why if, why is this a good thing in, in one direction and a, and a, and a bad thing in the other? And when you begin thinking about it, uh, it doesn't seem quite as simple. It doesn't seem like the sort of one input, one output linear problem that it's usually portrayed to be. Uh, typically, when uh, energy, uh, when efficiency mavens talk about uh, efficiency, they'll say, "Well, if you cut energy consumption by this much, then, or if you cu- if you increase energy efficiency by this much, then energy consumption will fall by you know roughly similar amount with some with just, some wiggle room." It's just arithmetic. I mean, it seems like just arithmetic. Yeah. But it's very complicated, and it reminds me of many of the things that you yourself have said about macroeconomics, which is that as you, as you sort of draw back from your own life, from your own house, from your own uh, washing machine or refrigerator, and you pull back and take a look not only at the whole economy, but the whole economy over a period of time, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to be true. Uh, it's not true. The, <laughs> for example, you know, you, there was just an article in a newspaper recently about uh, – Airplanes, new airplanes coming, much more fuel efficient than current ones, and and this is certainly the the direction that uh, that research is going in in aviation. Uh, air travel consumes a very large, it's it's a it's a very hungry energy user and a major contributor to atmospheric carbon. But the people who are working to make fuel make airplanes more efficient, they're mainly doing. I mean, there's other, there's some other 
bunch of motivations. Obviously, there's a politi- possible political motivation. There might be a good deed motivation, but they'd like to save money. It's expensive. So there's a natural impulse, and you give other examples where as human beings, we try to find ways to get more from less. Right, and when things become cheaper, we tend to do more of them. Yeah. Airplanes today are something like 70% more fuel efficient than they were when I first started flying. I'm 56. Uh, and yet we don't fly less. We don't no, we consume don't. less fuel. And, uh, you know, to the, to the point where, as I said in the book, today the, the main impediment to traveling 10,000 miles for a week's vacation is not the cost of the ticket, which in many cases is trivial, but uh, it's just the perceived unpleasantness of spending a whole day uh, sitting in a cushioned reclining seat and watching movies. Yep. So the, it, I think that it, and as you look at the way we consume uh, in all categories, from, from a farther, from as you draw back and look at, at the world, you don't see this relationship between uh, increased efficiency and decreased energy consumption. In fact, you see the you see the opposite. Now, of course, correlation is not causation. And correlation is not causation, of course. You point out in the book that, that many critics of your concern about this uh, point out, well, that, that it's not the energy savings that causes the increase in use. It's population. It's prosperity. And one of your points, of course, is that, well, prosperity is being driven by these energy savings. And that, so that's a... That's a uh, feedback loop that that's real, and and it's not as straightforward as the critics are saying. But I think I think the right point uh, is that it's an empirical question, and it's certainly true that if we can find cars that get uh, better mileage, if we can innovate, I shouldn't say we, if other people, thoughtful engineers, can find ways to innovate to get higher miles per gallon, that. That lowers the price of driving. That's undeniable. That means there's going to be more driving. That's your point. Now, the critics have a point, which is, well, it's true there's going to be more driving, but some of that higher driving could lead to less energy use because every mile driven now will require less fuel than it did before. So the the empirical question is – in economics, it's called an elasticity. There's a percentage increase in one direction, a percentage increase in the other direction. I think what makes the book – and so it's an empirical question and you'd want to hold constant the other things that are changing, population growth, et cetera. And I think you make it – it's not a persuasive case but a, a thoughtful case that a lot of the savings that seem obviously to overwhelm everything else aren't going to overwhelm everything else necessarily. I think the best example you give is – you know, when when dryers, your clothes dryer gets more efficient, uh, you don't dry your clothes for two hours. So the critics are right there that you as an individual are certainly going to uh, use less energy with a fuel efficient, energy efficient dryer than an older one. But more people are going to be able to afford dryers now. Uh, so that's one way that that's some of those savings are going to be offset. And there are a lot of things that aren't like dryers that you want to use more of. Refrigerator. I mean, who needs two refrigerators? Well, I have two. I think, right. I think you have two. I have one in the basement for when we throw a party, and you know, it's just sitting there humming along. Uh, it could have four things in it sometimes. But I don't even bother unplugging it. By the way, that's a whole separate issue when, when it's relatively empty. Uh, but we're relatively prosperous as as a as a country, incredibly prosperous by historical standards. So the idea of having a refrigerator is an enormously great thing. Having two is 
it's not just for really rich people. It's for a lot of everyday people have them. You no, know, it's become global. And, and you also see that it, you know, when you check into a hotel room, your room has a refrigerator yeah. in it. It's running. There's nothing All in the time. it. Well, sometimes there is. There's little cold, little chilled beverages in case you have an urge to have one. That's another. Right. Yep. Or some candy that doesn't need to be refrigerated. Correct. But it is. <laughs> uh, the, or the gas station that you stop at has today has more refrigerator capacity than the grocery stores of, of my youth. Uh, and that has consequences, too, not only in the direct energy consumption, but also in our, in our own consumption. The, you know, the whole 20-ounce uh, soda, the be- beverage, is in many ways a, uh, a product of this increased, vastly increased refrigerator capacity. Now you can get uh, anything refrigerated anywhere. And th- this has improved our lives in innumerable ways. I mean, things don't go bad the way they used to. But at the same time, it, our, uh, what, we, what we waste has increased dramatically. The, the amount of food that is wasted by American consumers has grown right along with the increased uh, uh, with, it, with their increased refrigeration capacity. So, you know, once again, it's a correlation. It doesn't, it doesn't prove anything. But I think you become suspicious after a while when all the correlations seem to run in one direction. And it's not enough for an economist to say, well, correlation doesn't prove causation, uh, because I think you, know, you also have to say, well, lack of correlation doesn't prove causation either. There has to be no, but there is causation, and you're right. So my my point is, is you're certainly right that there is a causal connection between lower energy use and per item and the desire to use more of the item. And the book lays out some of the uh, you could call it. I think the technical term in economics is intensive versus extensive margin, a phrase I never use, but mm. I think that's the technical term. Sounds the, cool. The, yeah, it does, doesn't it? So, so the intensive margin is, is that when something gets a little cheaper, I use a little bit more of it. The extensive margin is that, yeah, and, and so the cans, the bottles get bigger, more plastic is demanded, that's more petroleum used. I mean there's all these – you might call them spillover effects uh, in general uh, usage that – are going to change that. So again, I, 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 there's no denying that you're right, uh, although I'm sure people do deny it. There's no denying that that this tends toward more energy use. Um, there is an empirical question of how much it offsets, whether it totally offsets and then some, which it appears to do, or whether it merely – that whether the energy efficiencies merely overstated dramatically the, the gains, right? But I think there's no doubt that the effect – the behavioral impact of those efficiency gains is to encourage more energy use. Especially if you draw back, if, if your focus is global rather than, yeah, uh, than, in, your house, than yeah. in your house. In my house, everything I do, I'm trying to become more efficient at for the, you know, for the purpose of pushing down my energy consumption to save money, which I'm then not going to burn up. I'm not going to put that money on my compost heap. I'm going to use it for something else. And so probably even at the, the individual level, if there's no price constraint pushing down on your energy use as you in- increase these efficiencies. Even in your own life, you're probably increasing things too. But certainly when you pull back to the global level, uh, when you when the uh, sort of cumulative effect of, of all these efficiencies is to push down the cost of, uh, of these of what were once luxury goods and bring them to, the, to a level that they're affordable all over the world, you get these other consequences. And it's, it's, the kind of, it's, so, com- it's so complicated that you can't, uh, you can't reduce it to a formula or to, uh, you know, to plug it in and make it come out the other end 
with a neat prediction, as you might be able to within my own house. Correct. But as you look at the, you know, if you look at the world's energy meter, you have to think, well, it's not, you know, the, the energy use per capita is climbing, it's not falling. Uh, energy use overall is climbing, and it's climbing faster, it's climbing faster than population. It's expected to double by mid-century. I mean, who knows what will really happen, but it's expected to be, it's a big number now, and it's expected to be a really big number then, Population will not is not expected to grow at the same rate. So there's there's as we, I think the the basic idea is just as we become better at doing things, we do more things, and that's been true since the beginning. I was I was trying to think of an example of, uh, uh, when Amory Levins and others talk about this, they talk about it at the the end use the individual end use level. They don't agree it, with you. They don't. No, no, they don't. Uh, they don't agree with me at all. And and, and when I argue that the, the real world isn't like that, I was thinking, well, you could peel back the real world to the point where it was like that and think about very early in human history when the only energy input was food and and say and, and imagine that the only way of, of moving that food around or anything else is to drag it or carry it. Uh, now invent the wheel. Suddenly it doesn't uh, require, you don't need as much energy to move anything from one place to another. But you, we do not expect in this thought experiment for uh, the human population to cut back its food gathering now that it needs less. Uh, we expect the wheel to act as an amplifier of consumption. Now it's easy to extend agriculture or, or to hunt farther away or to gather food over a broader area. Uh, and with that food, now that it's not, uh, with that energy, now that it's not going into uh, inefficiently dragging things around, it, it's available for other uses, and and those the the feedback loops multiply and extend. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's it's a classic example of people respond to incentives, and if you think you can just hold everything else constant, uh, including things like well, since we'll, we we consumed a certain amount of food before the wheel, we'll consume the same amount as before. It just won't be as hard to move it around. That's not right. how well, people behave. No, it's not how people behave. But it is always the way, or almost always the way, we think when we, when we look at the world right now and imagine what the effect that some change will have. We assume that everything will stay pretty much the way it is. And I was that's thinking also... That's not an economist, David. <laughs> we, we economists, that's kind of our specialty, is, not, is letting things change. Uh, well, good. Uh, but I was thinking if you wind things back to the 1940s and imagine that the, the world of the vacuum tube, and, you know, it, it consumes a lot of energy. It requires a lot of material to build it. Uh, it. It takes up a lot of space. You think, well, if we had something more efficient, we could cut down our energy use, because this uses a lot of energy, and we could make things smaller. And then you invent the transistor in the late 1940s, which does all those things. But the effect of that is not that, you know, these huge television sets early television sets can now sit on smaller tables or that we can take these uh, our computers and put them into smaller rooms but you know they do the same perform the same function we can make our radio smaller it just it changes the world and now in my house today i have there are billions of transistors they're they're so small i don't even know what they are they're, yeah, they're but they thing. they're everywhere and the, the so the effect was not the effect that you might uh, intuitively think would happen when you've made something that requires less physical material, consumes less energy, and is smaller, uh, 
it wasn't that consumption fell. On the contrary, it was it, it was it exploded. Yeah. And the and those two trends are not unrelated. And I think that the 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 the, the sort of counterfactual argument that, that the uh, efficiency mavens make, which is, uh, well, you don't know what energy consumption would have been otherwise. And what you're doing then is asking me to imagine a world in which I have all the same electronic gadgets uh, that I have right now. The, my, you know, my telephone headset, my telephone, my the webcam on my computer, my computer. But I'm running there, but they're all running on 1940s technology. They all have vacuum tubes, and so. Yeah. I need a house that's many times the size of my current house because to fit all this stuff in, my billions of transistors. And yes, if that, if that were what my house looked like in 2012, I would be consuming an extraordinary uh, amount of energy, much more than I am today. No, it's, it's but a that's meaningless, not the way that kind of innovation yeah, works. Yeah, it's a meaningless thought experiment, that particular one. I, I, again, you can think about the – use an example that I often think about, which is uh, you, have a, you found an antique can – uh, an old beer can from the 1940s, yeah. and you note in the book that it uses five times the uh, – it weighs five times as much or it has five times the aluminum. I don't know what it was made out of actually now that I think about yeah, it. Yeah, probably steel. Uh, yeah. Some- but I, I think back to my youth, and I'm 57, so we have the same rough, – roughly the same youth, that in when we were kids – you showed off by crushing a can with your hand, right. uh, and now you can take a finger and press down, and, and you can crush a can. And that's a, a miracle of human innovation that a soda can can be stacked with that level of thinness, and it comes from the ability to machine the top in a different way with with a little. I mean, it just it's an extraordinary human success story. So we need less aluminum per can, but we have more cans today than we had in nineteen. 19- 60 when I was six years old. Uh, and one of the reasons is because is they're cheap. Right. <laughs> it's not there's no. So the we only, got better at making them. Yeah. The only comment I would make about that, and I want to move on to some other technology uh, fixes that you're also somewhat pessimistic or very pessimistic about. Um, the only comment I would make is that when I hear, re- hear your story about these spillover effects, full effects, uh, cascades of change that, that take place after these innovations, uh, most of it's really great. Uh, and, and you can see this in the book. Most of our human history, it's not just energy use. It's everything. We try to find ways to produce more from less, and every year our knowledge gets a little bit bigger about how to do that. And that's what allows us to have the extraordinary standard of living that, that we have, even in a recession. And mostly that's great. The human enterprise, the ability to – to travel with your food, to keep your food cold, to throw a party on the weekend because you got a second refrigerator that you couldn't otherwise do. These are great things mostly. The only downside of this story is that it increases the amount of carbon um, that goes in the air, and that appears to be bad for climate, and that appears to make the earth warmer at least. I'm more agnostic than you are, than most environmentalists are about whether that's catastrophic or not, and we'll, maybe we'll come back to that. But I think it's important to, to at least say, as you do in the book, most of these things are good. Oh, they're great. I mean, and, and who would – I think if you – you wouldn't willingly give up uh, almost anything. Uh, I, think there, I think there's more downside than, than, the, than the carbon issue. I think there are also – there are environmental – there's old-fashioned uh, air and water pollution, which we almost don't even talk about anymore. There are, uh, there are, I think water is a very fragile resource that we, that reaches a crisis point and, 
it, we don't we can't expect that we're going to find something to replace water. Uh, so it's a uh, it's a there's another uh, difficulty there. And I think there's also there's a sort of a there's another one which is an economic one, which is that where uh, it we're, the point at which our increased affluence ceases to really increase our our well-being, and and in fact, in, in some ways, can can reduce uh, reduce our sense of well-being. And there's a there's a it's very hard to turn to dial back any of these t- technologies, and yet you know we, we can find ourselves in, with houses that are too big, uh, with with commutes that are too long, uh, with what look like which are improvements in our economic profile, our economic activity, but that don't lead to what are genuine uh, improvements in our quality of life. You can see it in healthcare too, where with extraordinary increase in investment uh, in healthcare without a uh, without without probably a corresponding increase in our in our actual health. So I don't think it's only the uh, the climate issue. I think there there are other issues that that are linked to thinking only of increase uh, thinking of increase in economic activity as the only possible human source of human good. Yeah, well, you know, my I agree with you on the healthcare. We've subsidized healthcare unbelievably in the United States and most of the world, and as a result, we we waste a lot of resources. I think the other, the more subtle and interesting question is this relationship between consumption and well-being or health mental well-being, happiness. Obviously, there's a big debate on it. Um, I have um, I have no doubt that there are many technological improvements and material – and many aspects of material prosperity that are uh, illusory in their uh, attractiveness and don't lead to better um, outcomes of happiness, satisfaction, meaning. Um, but I don't want anybody mandating – Alternatives from on high. Uh, no, so I, I certainly I limit my kids' uh, computer time for game playing, which they love to do. I, I limit it a lot, and uh, they don't like it. <laughs> you're right, you're right. Uh, when they come in the house, it's often the first thing they want to do. I see that as a compulsive addiction, and it's it would be a good thing to learn how to cope with that. And I say that as I compulsively check my email, telling them not to get on their on that machine. So we all have frailties and things that that seem like fun. That afterwards we realize, why did I spend uh, you know two hours playing that game? But uh, I did it anyway, and I'll do it again. And I consider that an area for religion and growing up. And it's just not something I want public policy to deal with. But I, I think it's well, an interesting question. It is an interesting question. I think also we are pretty much exactly the same age. I think that that your kids today. You and I experience boredom in a way that a modern child can't. Yeah, it's just that the, the, that whole concept of of late fifties, early sixties boredom just doesn't exist exist anymore. But the way it's fixed is not necessarily the no, no. Um, losing the ability to gaze off in the distance and be pensive is is um, not a good thing, I don't think. But who knows? No, maybe it made, made us the wonderful people that we are today. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, so hope somehow our children will have some of those those advantages. We'll see. Anyway, so let's move on to uh, a set of issues which uh, really are, were fascinating. <clears throat> Talk about uh, city living and why New York City is a green place relative to the Vermont countryside. I really enjoyed that. 
Well, this is something that occurred to me. My wife and I lived in New York for seven years, and uh, back in the late 70s, early 80s. And then when our daughter was one year old, we decided we had to get out of the city. It was just we lived in our apartment. Uh, someone said was decorated like a yacht. You had to sort of, everything was stowed, and you had to kind of walk sideways to get around. And we, we desperately yearned for more room, and we, we moved to the country. We moved 100 miles north of the city into a big 18th century house across a dirt road from a, a multi-thousand acre nature preserve and felt as though we had stepped into Arcadia. And yet uh, I noticed over the period of a couple of years that, that it, even though our lives felt as though we had you know, sort of taken on a, a life of environmental purity, we had actually become much more wasteful consumers uh, in, in every sense. We had this, now we had this large house that we had to fill with stuff and that required uh, constant maintenance. We, in New York City, we lived without a car. We started out, we immediately got a car, uh, which was a huge change, and then realized almost uh, overnight that one car wasn't enough because if you have only one car, how do you get to the mechanic to pick up your car when it's being sure. repaired? So we had, <laughs> suddenly we had two cars. And then I, later I had a uh, sort of mild midlife crisis and we ended up with a third car, which uh, became a necessity as soon as our kids could drive. And our uh, electricity consumption went from about a dollar a day to uh, to huge to a <laughs> to a uh, more huge multiple of that. Yeah, it's a it's an old house that you could virtually put the furnace in the yard for all the the insulation that we have. And I realized that even though our life looked greener, uh, it was actually it was actually much less so, and, be, and began to think about that and realized that even. Though when when most I think that, that when you look at this when most people look at a place like New York City you just see concrete and fumes and uh, you know, garbage and an environmental disaster but what you really have is is a uh, is a large number of people living on a very small energy footprint New Yorkers use the smallest amount of energy per capita of any American New York State has the lowest uh, energy use per capita of any state, all because of New York City. Not fact, because of the raised consciousness of the average New Yorker, but because no, most because of them live green. in a very large city. Right. And in fact, in, uh, New Yorkers, no one is more surprised than a New Yorker when you, when you mention this. New Yorkers are really the only real consumers of uh, public transit in the United States. Half of all subway stops in the United States are in New York City. Almost uh, something like a third of all public transit passenger miles are in the New York City uh, pop, uh, metropolitan area. And the reason, it's all the same reason, which is as you move people closer together, uh, they become, driving becomes more difficult, becomes an impossibility. Uh, living spaces shrink. But it's also, which, it's not as necessary. There's a lot of stuff It's not necessary. You can right. walk to stuff. Although I think the, 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 the lure of the car is so huge that if every apartment came with a, a garage space, people might have them anyway. But they're not, they, they don't have the same kind of utility. In the United States, we have more, Today, we have more registered automobiles than we have licensed drivers. In New York City, uh, in, in Manhattan, 77% of households don't own even one car. That's, un, that's be, it's not even on the chart. It's un-American. <laughs> and they don't drive them the way the rest of us do. They drive them uh, basically only to escape New York. Yeah. Um, there are obviously, there are many downsides to urban life. My wife and I fled urban life, but 
in terms of organizing human beings in a way that constrains uh, energy use, water use, resource use, uh, density has tremendous value. And it's, it's uh, not all density is equal. Uh, one of the, there's a, there, uh, I've seen studies that talk about the, the limits of density in terms of encouraging things like uh, public transit use. And they say, yes, as you move people closer together, transit use rises, but then it levels off. And that's true. But the reason is that once you move people sort of Manhattan style, even transit begins to seem inconvenient and ineffective, and people simply walk. Oh, yeah. I walk everywhere in New York. Yeah. And it, miles it, in New York. In fact, it's, why, uh, it's why New Yorkers live longer than other Americans, probably. It's one of the reasons they're, they are kind of – New York City is one of the very last uh, places – in the country where walking is a primary form of transportation. Correct. It's almost inconceivable anywhere else. So there's a nice quote from the book I want to read um, that relates to this and, and relates to another issue, which is uh, buying local as an environmental statement. So here's the quote. <clears throat> a recent documentary about Portland's green consciousness shows a concerned resident driving her minivan 25 miles to buy two bags of fresh produce from a farmer on the other side of the city's urban growth boundary. And it shows the same farmer in a pickup truck transporting a larger but still very small selection of produce into the city to sell at an urban farmer's market. Both trips are presented as virtuous acts, but neither makes environmental sense. As you can see easily if you think in terms not of distance, but of energy and carbon expenditure per pound of delivered nutrients – if all the world's groceries traveled from farm to fork in minivans, two bags at a time, we'd have exhausted many of the world's resources long ago. Locavorism is appealing because like many of the most popular green strategies, it feels enlightened, yet entails no actual sacrifice, even if you don't grant yourself exemptions for coffee and out-of-season fruit. So that was a spectacularly insightful uh, paragraph. Oh, good. Thank you. Uh, I think locavorism is a tough one because my wife has written cookbooks, uh, points out food is an extremely emotional topic. And uh, people, she says, tend to, uh, to sort of identify themselves by what they refuse to eat. And these are powerful, personal, spiritual issues for people. Yeah. And so you, you can see, I think you can see it a little more easily if you move to non- food, agricultural products, and think about, for example, cotton, it wouldn't make any sense at all to, to, to demand that you know, my cotton clothing uh, come only from uh, fields within 25 or 50 or 100 miles of where I live because there, it would be ridiculous to grow cotton in most of the places where, where people live. It just yeah. doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. And if you had to grow cotton that inefficiently, uh, you would be using up land that should be in production, it should be producing food for people to eat. And this is, this is it doesn't, uh, the, the, the anti, my anti-locavorism argument doesn't address the industrial food uh, argument. Separate issue, make. I agree. Uh, but but it, mean, it just means that the, it's yet again a, a, a feel, a, an issue where there's not an easy answer that doesn't, that won't force you to think more than one step through a problem. The, the uh, it's a it's a complicated problem, especially when you begin to think of it on a global basis and how how all these things play out over a world of seven or eight or nine or ten billion people. So, 
in terms of cities and and the issue of uh, you know, I guess we could think of three parts of uh, of urban life. There's or semi-urban life. We have we have a dense city, we have uh, a suburb, and then we have country living that's sort of near a city. Um, you're arguing that if we really wanted to make an impact on America's energy use and carbon footprint, we ought to be encouraging people to live in denser, more urban areas and that the uh, in-betweens and the, the, the lack of density and the, these other solutions are not very effective. Is that, is that true? I think so. All the, all the incentives push the other way. Uh, the uh, the incentives we give to people to buy homes, the uh, incentives in in the form of the transportation network that makes it easy to get to the distant places, uh, the, inex- the 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 cheapness of the fuel that moves those moves the vehicles that makes it possible to live in those places. Uh, all these things, you know, zoning regulations. I was the chairman of my local zoning commission until very recently. All our zoning regulations encourage. Uh, you know what we call sprawl, suburban sprawl. They, they, they're they're, in ter- they're they're all framed in in terms of creating distance between uses rather than shrinking it. Uh, and they're and they're basically, if you look at the history of them, they they they, they grew up with the automobile, and their their main focus is on making sure that everybody will always have a place to park. Uh, the all these uh, push us outward and make it less likely that we will organize ourselves in a way. That actually has some long-term environmental value, which is, which is by moving people closer together. And I think I think environmental groups have been, uh, environmentalist groups have been uh, guilty too, by uh, by having really from the beginning, from the time of Thoreau and John Muir, the, by Im- impressing on us the idea that urban life is is uh, is evil and, and tawdry. Uh, yeah, and, and horrible. And for a long time, I mean, it, it was. I mean, Reed Dickens about yeah. London. You wouldn't. It's just sewage running in the streets. There's a lot of huh. negatives about. There's a lot of bad things about cities. <laughs> the plague, the black yeah, death. Yeah, that's fun. Malaria, cholera. Uh, the but um, not malaria, cholera. Sorry, cholera. Right. Yeah, everything. Uh, but on the other side, there are there. Are, I, I don't. I think that the that groups like the Sierra Club, who I, I pick on in the in the book, have have done a disservice to the environment by making us feel what my wife and I felt that we that we need a person to be authentic. We need this personal contact with the green world, which we now have, but at great cost in terms of uh, our personal environmental damage and energy consumption. And really, at, at in there's a trade-off in our in our well-being. Uh, we haven't exactly been clamoring to move away from from this paradise, but it requires a significant investment in automobiles and fuel and heating fuel and paint and everything else to to maintain it. Well, I, I, it's interesting. I, I live I live a suburban life and happened to have been in New York City yesterday. Uh, New York City doesn't have a lot of green. The green it does have is very concentrated, obviously. It's in Central Park. In Man- I was in Manhattan. Um, but it has a lot of one very natural thing, which is people. Uh, it's interesting that you know we. I, lo- I love so-called nature. I love mountains and hiking and being outdoors. But being outdoors in New York City in Manhattan is an extraordinarily uh, 
interesting and visually stimulating thing in a way that natural landscape isn't. It's still natural. We just don't have romantic books about it. Right. <laughs> and I think it's and I think it was a, a sort of I think it's a mistake on the part of it's the wrong way to protect the unspoiled places by sort of trying to throw uh, fences around them rather than by turning the problem inside out and saying and thinking about how do we organize people in a way that puts these uh, resources at less risk. And I think that the, you don't do it by suggesting that the only way to, that the ideal way to live is with your own personal relationship with these things. Because if you believe that, then when the next person follows your example and moves next door to you, you yeah. have to move another step farther along. And you see that in the, that's the history of, uh, of our, um, uh, of our settlement across our sure. continent. And it, it has tremendous, once again, the thing you talked about earlier, it has tremendous, uh, it's had tremendous value, uh, for us. But it's also, it reaches a point where, um, you know, our tolerance for, for the automobile commute has risen. And we, there, you, one of the consequences you see is you go, any city, I was just in Orlando, Florida, and you see, you see sort of, where am I in this metropolitan area? Because every place I go looks exactly the same. Yeah, it's a strange place. Huge roads, many, uh, many uh, lanes, bypasses, interstates, and this time I'm spending in my car to go from one identical place to another is not really uh, enhancing. Yeah, there's something Kafkaesque about Orlando, actually. And if you were gonna <laughs> say, I, I know exactly what you mean. It's an alarming place. Yeah, it's not not that I haven't had some very good times there. I don't want to. I think there there's a good there's a good example too of how we don't necessarily think clearly about uh, environmental impacts. And I think you, you look at look at the automobile. People will talk about uh, traffic congestion, for example. This is a terrible environmental problem. Traffic congestion is not an environmental problem. It's a driving problem. Driving is the environmental problem. So if you if you think of congestion as the problem, then all the almost everything you do actually makes the real problem worse, the driving problem worse, because we do the, you know let's make traffic move more smoothly. Let's use computers to to let's add new lanes. Let's use computers to organize the traffic better. Let's give cars a, a little computer thing that will tell you where the empty parking space is, so that driving will be more convenient. You know, give me books on tape so that I'm not bored when I'm stuck in traffic. Uh, you mean, podcasts. You know, air, air Don't forget podcasts, David. Yeah, and podcasts. Podcasts, of course. Very important. Uh, and the, the you know the the famous NPR moment, which I'm everyone is familiar with, where you're listening to something either on the radio or a podcast or a book that you're not ready to you're not finished with when you pull into your driveway, so you you take a couple more laps around the block to listen to. These all make uh, being in the car more pleasant. They don't they. They solve the congestion problem, but they make the driving problem worse. And I was thinking, you know, I was thinking, well, what would, a, what would an actually green car look like? A truly green car? And I was thinking, well, it probably look something more like a golf cart. It wouldn't have doors on it. It wouldn't have a heater. You'd be able to. It would have a very low top speed. You'd be able to get your child to the hospital, but you would not, you know, go jump in it and spend the day tooling around the country because it would be. Uh, unpleasant. It would be unpleasant. Well, you, what you want is like a World War II Jeep, where this, you know, where the <laughs> springs are shot and the seats right. are uncomfortable, and and I think that's the challenge of 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 your book. It, it's that it naturally points to making life worse as a way to solving some of these problems. Um, 
that's not a very – and as you recognize in the book, that doesn't sell so well. No, I think – but it's, it's not necessarily – I think that where the difficulty is I don't think it's pointing to necessarily making life worse. It's, it's, making, life, it's making life's imprint, impact smaller and thinking of uh, – finding different ways to think about what makes life better. Uh, if I – wouldn't I rather – would I rather, you know, live – uh, in a different way that gave me benefits in other ways other than just uh, just my income. If I were, if I weren't uh, uh, you know burning up my income in this house that's twice the size of the average house when I was born, or driving uh, thousands of miles more a year than my father did, uh, are those really are those really gains in my uh, in my uh, in my well being and. I don't think all of them are. Many, many of them are. I mean, I certainly wouldn't give up email uh, or online bridge um, or my new uh, my new golf clubs. Um, but uh, I don't think it necessarily that thinking about less doesn't necessarily mean thinking about worse. In many categories, I think it means thinking about better. You don't spend much time on the book on that. <laughs> it's very difficult to it's, think. It's a short book. <laughs> it is a short book. It's like I was thinking at the end, I should just write time across the last page, like you would in a blue book in college, <laughs> just when I get to the to the solutions. Because I think that the, they're very difficult. When you talk about global problems, and it, it's the reason that we focus on things like the cans that we set out at the curb. It's not what you do as an individual is not enough. Every little bit doesn't count because it's a huge problem. It, even at a national level, it's not sufficient. It's a when you talk about global problems, it requires a kind of global action and across a huge range of affluence levels. And it, it's it, it seems discouragingly inconceivable even to think about it. Okay. And I think that I think in fact you see that in the. Someone said to me, "Why do you, why do you think that uh, uh, if I could could I account for the." Um, Sort of low level of, uh, and in fact, declining level of sense of urgency about climate change among people. I, I don't think among educated people. Say, I don't think it's because people haven't thought about it or because they reject science or the scientific method. I think people have at least unconsciously thought about it and decided that the the potential uh, downside is not worth the potential upside. I think that's true. I think obviously it's, there's a lot of different motivations and, and feelings people have about it. But if one way to summarize what your book is, is that what your book says is that the things that many of us do to feel green, putting curbs out at the, at the side, um, saying paper instead of plastic, um, or better yet, bringing your own tote bag as we're encouraged to do here and in my uh, where, where I'm li- where I live in my, in Maryland, it's now there's a nickel charge for them to to allow me to use their paper and plastic bags. Mm-hmm. Um, my electric car, that's really a coal powered car, if it were widely adopted, because electricity is generally generated by right. coal. So we have all these um, symbolic statements that we make that. There is a piece of us, I think, inside that says, yes, everybody did it. We'd save the planet. What you're really saying is that it's not true. It would take a lot more than that and uh, what it would really require at current uh, 
the way the world works now is is a significant reduction in our consumption of stuff across the board. No one's really wants to do that, and as a result, we're living in a bit of a fantasy world where our green gestures are not much more than gestures. Um, in fact, you you also we didn't talk about it yet, but you talk about other so-called fixes, uh, solar, wind. Um, that they're just not practical. It's it's um, an illusion. Is that an accurate summary? Well, yes. I think they're 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 not economically rational in the way we think about economics. And they the idea that they will suddenly become that way uh, if we sort of think about it hard enough uh, is or I force think, people to use them. Or yes, it, the and I think that the the one thing that I say in the book in it. This, we don't often think this way, which is that, that problems innovate too. And we tend to think that we, we identify a problem. We think that we just imagine the problem sitting still while we come up with a solution to it. But in fact, that you know, the problem is innovating as well, and it almost certainly has better funding than the solution does. <laughs> and if you the uh, the the sudden abundance of natural gas is is a good example of that. Here's a technological innovation that has vastly increased our estimates of the. The uh, our reserves, the global U.S. reserves, global reserves of natural gas, uh, as well as pushing down the, the price, uh, that is generally. Uh, I was at a conference in Washington recently where uh, a, a an expert referred to natural gas as great for the environment. It's one of the uh, one of the cleanest. Well, it's one of the most amazing rebranding uh, success stories of recent time. You know, it's, Natural gas is a fossil fuel, but yes. now it's the good fossil fuel. It's like the other, <laughs> the other white meat. Um, and, but what it has done is completely taken the wind out of wind. Uh, it's made, uh, you know, that was a hard sell to begin with. Now it's a, a, essentially an, an impossible one. And so for anybody who is hoping that uh, natural gas will be what you, you hear people refer to as a, it's, it's a bridge fuel. This is what will carry us to the, this will give us the time we need to develop renewables. Uh, you know, if, if natural gas is a bridge to anything, it's a bridge to coal because once we, when we get to the end of it, if we ever do, uh, then we'll say now, let's see, what, what was it that we didn't like about coal and, uh, and go on to, to burning it. Yeah. Um, so what, what would you like to see happen? I'll give you I'll give you an alternative, but I want to hear what you say first. What's given these realities, which are that people like comfort, they like being able to drive their cars, um, they like having a big house, they like a big yard, they like to water it and mow it, and all these cultural aspects of our lives. Um, how what might if there is a problem? What might be done about it? Uh, I don't know, and I don't know. And the uh, there's a, a an annoyingly honest answer to that question. Uh, I do think it's one that, of my favorites. <laughs> I love that answer. You don't necessarily hear it often. Enough, no, you don't. Uh, the I, you know, you know why it doesn't sell that well. <laughs> I, I can anybody can say it. My my ten year old, my twelve year old can say it. So why would I pay you to say it? You're <laughs> yeah, supposed to, right. I'd pay you for something better than that. I can get that from, you know. Truth is good. You already don't know, but you don't, what you don't know, you don't know for the wrong reason. Yeah. There's, there's other reasons why you don't know what the answer is. 
But I think what we saw, we saw in uh, 2008, for example, we saw an actual reduction globally in uh, energy use and carbon output. The reason wasn't that everybody suddenly became green. It was that the price of oil went way high and the global economy tanked. Hey, hey. Uh, so we know how, we know actually, we know how to uh, push down uh, global energy use. We know how to push down carbon output. It's, you do it through uh, price and uh, through when people are uh, feel threatened in their livelihoods, they, they, they hunker down and they, and they consume less. But we don't know is how to do that in a benign way, and we certainly don't know how to do it in a way that limits the, consum- the disproportionate consumption of those of us who are fortunate enough to be the, the world's premier consumers of everything uh, without also making life impossible for, for people at the other end of the global income scale. There are, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of people in, in the world who have no access whatsoever to electricity, and there are hundreds of millions more coming. And so any... Uh, any and when they get it, they like it. And when they get it, they like it. They do. And, and it's great, and they should. And, and, they should. and, it, and, it, and, it, and it, it, it brings the benefits that we know, health care, education, uh, uh, Movies. longevity, Movies. food. <laughs> uh, at the same time, though, it compounds these other problems because when you can, when you have an electric light, the workday doesn't end when the sun goes down. You become more productive. Uh, your your energy consumption rises in other categories, and when it rises in one category, it rises in all, and eventually, uh, you want a car. Uh, so it's you see these. Um, it's why I think it's why it, it, it's an easy explanation of why we think okay, I'm I'm going to. Uh, uh, I'm going to stop eating um, raspberries from California, and that's going to be my contribution. Um, well, your book reminded me – it probably doesn't remind very many people but of this, but it reminded me of uh, a book I learned a great deal from, which was by William Easterly. He wrote a book called The Elusive Quest for Growth. And in that book, he gives the history of how economists and policy experts have tried to figure out how to make poor people richer, how to make poor countries richer. And each chapter has a new solution to the problem that concludes by saying, well, we thought it was this, but it turns out it's not. Mm-hmm. You know, we thought it was investment, but it turns out investing doesn't always lead to, to growth. And then – so I'm reading the book and I'm thinking, well, I'm waiting for the – well, when he gets to the education chapter, that, that's the answer. It's education that leads to growth. But now it turns out that too um, we, can, we can pay for more – building more schools in poor countries and we could even pay for children to have children sit in classrooms longer, but they don't necessarily have a better standard of living um, when that's done. So that book, in a way, is a very depressing book. It um, that last chapter never gets written uh, about what the the real uh, silver bullet is to to help poor countries grow richer. And the conclusion of William Easterly is we don't know how to do it very well, and that's just the reality. Your book reminded me of it as well. I, you know, you, I get to the chapter that energy efficiency is a bit of a uh, – doesn't really lead to what you think it does. And then, well, solar – no, not quite. And went, mm-mm, buying local – nope. And you keep waiting for that chapter and it doesn't come. So let me give you um, a optimistic and pessimistic reading of your book and then uh, you, you can uh, tell me which you prefer if either are your own. Um the optimistic reading is is that these are hard problems. 
the essence of economics is that there are no solutions, only trade-offs. And in this case, most of the trade-offs push us in one direction. People choose a particular set of of choices and activities that lead to more consumption and that's built into our human our human our humanity. And so the way to change that, if you want to change it, the optimistic story, the best you can do is that you've got to preach. You've got to change people's culture and spiritual uh, outlook towards smaller and 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 less impactful. And and that's um, hard to do. We don't know how to do it very well, but it's not a technological problem. It's not an engineering problem, et cetera. The pessimistic story is that uh, there's not much we can do about it. And you should just go on living your life and enjoy it and don't fool yourself into thinking that there's something to be done about it. And for me, I'd go, I guess, actually, I'm going to pick a third choice, which is why don't we spend our time and energy dealing with what a world would look like with more consumption because that's where we're going. Mm-hmm. Unless we want to live under some kind of tyranny, um, obviously, a, a world authority of environmentalists could impose regulations I think they would do other things as well. So I'm not real big on concentrating power in the hands of people who would save the earth. They tend to save themselves in that situation and hurt other people. So my view, which is you know very eclectic, is that this is it's a little bit pessimistic, but you know I'm more optimistic than maybe you are about how we'll cope with these changes. But I don't think we can stop them. And I bet. And having said that. That would make a lot of people angry, which is another reason I suspect the reaction of the book is not is somewhat hostile from your environmental friends who you basically agree with. Right, and I, I think I, I might agree with all three of your your options there. I think there's the one thing that I've been very interested in. I've written a, for the New Yorker a profile of a chemist at MIT named Daniel Nocera. Uh, it hasn't run yet, but he's a uh, he's a, a chemist. He's been working on energy for his entire career. He's our age exactly. Uh, he is most famous for inventing what he calls the artificial leaf. It's a, uh, 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 it basically uses sunlight to split water into hydrogen and oxygen. And he, his goal is to not to do what we have done with research in this country, which is to, uh, how do we, uh, provide alternative, alternative energy sources that meet our current energy needs, but to look at, at from the bottom of the global scale, the world's very porous to people who have no access to electricity now. And he says, when you look at the problem from that end, when you're not thinking about how do we power a car to make it go 200 miles on one charge, from go from zero to 60 and go 200 miles on one charge, but looking at how do we provide some power, 100 watts, uh, an average rate of 100 watts through the day to somebody who currently has no electricity. He says the energy problem looks completely different. And his utopian idea or his long-term idea is that if you approach the energy problem from that end, you end up improving the lives of hundreds of millions of people whose lives are need a significant improvement. And in the course of doing that, you create the technologies that eventually enable people at the other end of the income scale to live in uh, you know adequate comfort, but at a smaller impact. And you know, it, it, it's plausible. I mean, it, it, you always, I think, always come back to, or at least in my sort of frame of thinking, what are the unintended consequences? That, that I said to someone, I said, you know, all consequences are unintended consequences. And as you look back through the, the history of things, it's, it's uh, that's, there's support for that position. But, but I think it's a, 
it's a very hope, hopeful one, and it's and it's a it, it comes from kind of turning the problem upside down and uh, trying to th- to think of it a different in a different way. Explain that again. Why why does that turn the world upside down? Why why does thinking about getting some electricity to really poor people help so much relative to a different perspective? Well, what he, his his line is that if you think of the renewable energy problem as how to power a car, it's a huge engineering problem because storage is a storage is a problem. It's you you have to be able to if you tried to uh, to recharge a car, for example, with solar panels on its roof, you would have to leave it sitting in a parking lot for weeks in order to be able to drive to work. It's just not uh, solar energy is just too dispersed. You need a huge storage. It's, it's it's extremely expensive. You need to deliver that power in a hurry to get you from from a stop to highway speed uh, very quickly, and you need to be able to hold enough of it in that car uh, to to move you along the highway. Know, for most of the day, but if you think instead, there's no way. And he says that there is no level of technological ingenuity that will make that technology affordable for somebody who earns, say, a dollar a day. But he says if you if you flip it upside down, you think, how do I pr- provide a minimum level of electricity to someone at the very at the cheapest possible way, the crudest uh, crudest possible way, but cheap. Then you look at then all this, the the physics and chemistry and engineering look different, and you approach the problem from that way. And his his belief then is that by, for example, in India, by providing uh, a minimal level of, of electricity uh, through his his method, which is basically turning water into a fuel and then burning the fuel to run a turbine to generate a very modest amount of electricity, you make a dramatic improvement in the lives. Of those people, and then eventually, you uh, through the the spread of this over a large number of people, the technology improves to the point where it actually could have an impact on people who live at the level of consumption that you and I do. But it's a very it's an idealistic view, but it's another way of 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 looking at uh, uh, global energy use that is, is different from the way we typically do. I wonder though if there's a way to I mean if we thought about the amount of resources we currently spend, there's a huge amount that's currently spent on trying to find a way to make a car get a little better mileage or have the battery weigh a little bit less or the materials weigh a little bit less or make the can a little bit thinner, right? There's, there's engineers all over the world working on those problems right now mm-hmm. a lot. But there are also people who are trying to just reduce energy's, energy use for its own sake. Is there and, – and one might be – the professor you're talking about, um, who views this as a – not doing it for the monetary benefit. He's doing it because he thinks he's making the world a better place. He's going to be famous as a result. but doesn't hurt. But he's not doing it just for profit. He's right. got an ulterior motive as well, another, another motive. There's a lot of people in that group, people who are doing things, some of which are counterproductive as you point out. So I wonder if it's possible – that if we took those resources, and again, I'm not saying we should steer them this way, but but people would voluntarily do it if they thought that it was more effective, into thinking about how to cope with climate change rather than how to prevent it or mitigate it. And I think ultimately it, it, there's a deep spiritual, religious, um, 
non-rational. I don't want to call it irrational. It, it, it just it's not a technology engineering problem. It's uh there's so much more going on there, and I think that tapping into that is one way to improve things. That, that that's part of my possibly optimistic story. And the, and the other is though that if we could change the way people look at these things, maybe they would cope with change rather than try to prevent it. Yeah, I, I think that's. Uh, I think there's there's merit in that, especially since we don't really have any confidence that the steps we're taking to prevent it are likely to be effective. Uh, I think I was this recently at a conference in Washington D.C. where it was about energy and security, and there were a number of people there from the Pentagon or from the Defense Department or retired people from the various military branches. And the U.S. military is a very has a very sort of Unemotional, straightforward, uh, forward-thinking view about the environment, about climate, and the, there was a, a guy. I don't know if he's an admiral or somebody. Said, you know, the, the climate is changing. Uh, we have to change. And in, his view was very simple: it was, you know, if there's no ice on the North Pole, then ships can uh, can steam across the you know, military. The, the navies of other countries can travel uh, through the Northwest Passage, and this is an issue for the for the U.S. Navy. Uh, there is a kind. There is something sort of bracing about just the sort of uh, non-emotional, straightforward thinking about some, about something like that. Uh, and there's also you see in the military the, an interest in. Um, they're tremendous energy users, and they're in, uh, in an they've been in an environment where they haven't had to think about uh, their energy consumption. The interesting thing I learned was one of the one of the, somebody from the Department of Defense said that the 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 American military owns something like 300,000 buildings, and until very recently, none of them had a metering of any kind, electricity or water or anything like that, because there's no incentive. Yeah. There's no incentive. <laughs> and now, if the you know if we're actually going to shrink the military budget some, then there is an incentive to think about these things. There's also a there's also a human incentive, which is that the the, the American military is, if you think of it as a single entity, is probably the single largest consumer of energy in the world. You know, the jets, the jet fuel is measured not in miles per gallon, but in gallons per mile. And, uh, it's staggering. And also, it, the, in places like Afghanistan and Iraq, the, the many casualties have taken place in, in this tremendous ongoing logistical problem of moving fuel to, to the soldiers. There are fuel care, uh, convoys are easy targets and many, many casualties have been, uh, of, have, have have been suffered by uh, soldiers who were accompanying those those shipments. So the the military is thinking about these these things. I think in a in a sort of a the kind of uh, clear non emotional way that you're talking about non ideological way. And in some ways they have the the luxury of being almost uh, kind of extra democratic. Without they haven't really they don't their their budget items aren't voted on individually by by Congress or by uh, to, to any great extent, they they're, they've, they've sort of been a group apart. Uh, but at the same time, also you could say you know they're they're they've been the American military has been responsible for more energy consumption and, and resource uh, uh, destruction than than uh, than any other comparably sized group on on Earth in the history of the human race. So it it, it sort of works both ways. But there. There, there was something that I found that was, it was refreshing in the same way about you know just kind of taking this less 
um, fraught and heated uh, um, uh, approach to this problem. I was thinking there, if, if an asteroid were bearing down on the Earth, uh, people would be much less emotional about deciding whether we were going to do something about it because you wouldn't feel that there was this sort of implicit criticism of yourself in, uh, in, in the fact that something potentially extremely dangerous was, was possibly going to happen. You would look at it much more clearly and, uh, and without... Um, I mean, there wouldn't of, be a lot of baggage. It would just be, um, as Samuel Johnson said, the knowledge that you'll be hung in a fortnight concentrates the mind. <laughs> right, 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 and yeah. you know, that's what would happen. Right. But I was, I was thinking of something a little starker, which is you know, the Earth's going to get warmer, and maybe we ought to be spending our time figuring out how to make that the most pleasant world it could be rather than figuring out how to keep it from happening. Right. And certainly, if, even if, if, even, if it's true. I mean, I, I'm, I'm relatively agnostic about the science. I don't think it's settled. But let's say it is settled. Let's say it's unavoidable that, that if we get richer, there's going to be a warmer Earth. I'm not quite sure of the consequences of that. I'm not sure they're as catastrophic as people say they are. But if they are, maybe we should be trying to cope with that rather than saying we have to stop it. Right. Well, even if you, even if you believe that we should be trying to stop it. You still have to be think. You still should be thinking about the, the the adaptation question too, because it's not nobody who thinks nobody who talks about stopping it thinks that anything we can do will cause it, the effects to disappear. It's still something that people will have to cope with and adapt to. And, and you're right. I mean, you can't. Uh, there there are low. The, once again, the Pentagon is saying you know, we have. If, if you're in the Navy, our bases are at sea level, and so we have to be thinking about what it means to potentially. Uh, a rise, in, uh, a meter rise in, uh, in sea level over the course of the next half century or century. And, and as the, the admiral who said this said, it's not just the base itself, it's the, the community that surrounds it and both supports it and is supported by yeah, sure. uh, the base. And so even if you are a, no matter whether, even if you are uh, Bill McKibben, uh, you have to be thinking about adaptation in addition to... to uh, prevention. My guest today has been David Owen. David, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.